0: even greater honor to be preaching today um, i was originally trained as an engineer and i used to hang out with engineers and i have to say they didn't make a lot of money and their lives were usually uh, they tried to compensate for their lack with alcohol and other diversions and they weren't it didn't seem like it was a very happy life. So I feel like I'm really blessed now to have escaped all that and uh, to be able to live a life that's free of all those diversions and distractions. It's life is a lot, a lot easier. Um, even even when I was in the army, the uh, my fellow comrades-in-arms, if we got leave on Saturday night, they'd all go out. We'd go out together as a group, and they would go to the bars and get drunk and uh, do all sorts of other unmentionable things. And somehow the Lord preserved me. I would go sit in a park all evening (laughs) and wait for them to come back. So I feel like the Lord protects us. in many ways, and I'm really grateful for that protection. So, and I found out when I was fairly young that there are some secrets to living a a fulfilling life. And I'm calling this sermon, The Four Secrets. Now, there's actually more than that, but these are four that came to mind, and they are service, uh, having faith and being hopeful is number two, being diligent and showing compassion. And I'd like to s- explain those a little bit. And I'll just pick on for service, a really recent example. I found that whenever I try to be of service to others and be a blessing to them, the Lord multiplies my efforts and blesses that work. It was uh, I think it was actually last Thursday. I had a student, I teach at the dental school in Loma Linda, and we have one student who, oh, I didn't. Okay, I have, I don't think I turned it on. Who looks like, he acts like he spent his whole life playing video games because when he has to do anything with his hands or uh, do something in the laboratory, he has no idea what to do. I mean, he's just completely lost. And you can see it in his eyes. He looks, when he has to sit down in the lab and do something, make dentures or uh, do a preparation on plastic teeth practicing, he just looks bewildered, confused, almost panicky looking. He, you can see the fear in his eyes. And so he, he just looks really frightened. And when I see him, I, I kind of feel sorry for him. And after lab today, everyone else was finished and he was only half done. And so I kind of wandered over to his workstation. And I started talking to him. And I asked him how it was going. And he started asking me questions. And um, then I sat down. It was about 5 o'clock. I sat down with him for an hour and a half, almost two hours. And I went through the entire laboratory procedure, which was preparing a tooth for an amalgam filling. And I did the whole procedure for him. And he watched me do it. And I explained each step and showed him what materials and burrs and other things I used. And he was really curious. Uh, He's actually easy to work with because he's attentive. He pays attention. And when I was all done showing it to him, and it took almost two hours, he, oh, you get feedback from the, okay, thank you. He seemed more confident. He was like smiling, and he looked happy, and he had this kind of alertness in his eyes and this confidence that I'd never seen before. And I I was really grateful for that. I felt like we'd made some progress with him. And now that's a really small example, I think, of being of service. But if you look around you everywhere, there are people that need help or they're in trouble or they need a word of encouragement. And if you keep your eyes open, you'll find people that need encouragement. And the Lord will tell you exactly what to say to try to encourage them and help them. And when I have a day like that, when I'm able to help someone or teach them something, I go home and I thank the good Lord that I was able to do even a little thing to help somebody else. Now, there's this misconception that if you're gonna be of service, you're doing something really big, maybe like Rodney building a church or going out as a missionary or something like that. But life is really, my mother used to say, life is made up of small gestures. And so look for the little events around you where you can try to be of service to others. and the Lord will bless that effort very much. Um, so, but for me, being of service is a secret that has helped me to, um, for one thing, to always have a job. I, when we came back from the mission field, I didn't have a job. Uh, we worked at St. Vincent for seven years came back and had no job and I met a dentist who was running a clinic at the Sachs Norton Clinic in San Bernardino and they were looking for someone to work on AIDS patients. Now that's not the most attractive position and it is a little bit risky in ways and the patients can be very difficult to work with but I've learned that if you wanna have a job, do what nobody else wants to do or do it better than everybody else is doing it. And so I took the job and it's turned out to be a real blessing because now when I have, a lot of these patients are very sick. They have multiple, they'll have cancer and, and pneumonia and hepatitis and HIV AIDS and diabetes. And all at the same time they have multiple diseases because your immune system is weakened. So you you get sick, but now after working there for about seven years with these patients when I'm at the dental school and we have a really sick patient comes in, the other doctors ask me to come over and evaluate their health because I've had a fair amount of experience doing that. So I think that that being willing to be of service, being willing to do things that other people don't want to do, the Lord blesses us when we do that. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be of service. Uh, Christ himself said that, that, he would be greatest among you must be servant of all. So I'd like to encourage you to every day, look for opportunities to be of service to others. Like Rodney and Rose the other day, they were ministering to a homeless woman, somebody with missing a leg, did you say? Now, that must be really, really kind of discouraging, and to be homeless, too. Um, So all around us, there are people that are in need of encouragement and, and help. And I'd have to say, having been a dentist for 35 years, that what people need more than anything is encouragement. They kind of know what they're doing wrong. I have a lot of patients that smoke or use drugs or they're diabetic and they like sweets and they don't follow their diet and they know that what they're doing is wrong but and it doesn't do me a lot of good to reprimand them or or criticize them for this I try to express hope you know I'm we're hoping and praying that that you'll be able to do better in the future give them some kind of word of encouragement and that seems to help a lot more Now, I think the next secret is being hopeful. I work with a lot of people who, when a problem arises, they start complaining, criticizing, and accusing. And in fact, if you read the newspapers, that seems like that's all the reporters do today is they criticize everybody. They try to find something wrong with a politician in the opposite party and then they, they criticize and complain. And I can't say that that's helped very much. Are we a better country because of all the, the backbiting and criticism that's been going on? I'm not sure we are. But if you can find, find a kind word to say to someone, you can really change their whole their whole outlook. I mean, this morning, Uh, when we woke up this morning my wife was exhausted because i had been snoring all night long she said and she didn't sleep very well and she of course when we don't sleep we can be a little grumpy i know when i don't sleep i'm i'm not in very good shape i tend to be irritated by everything and so she was a little irritable and uh, i was trying to think what can i say to her to encourage her and so just before I left to come up here, she wanted to stay home and sleep, and there was nobody snoring there. So so try to catch up on her sleep, but she stayed home. And I said to her, I said, I put my arms around her, and I said, Mala, you know, you're really the only thing in this whole world that belongs to me. You're all I have in this world. You've been with me through thick and thin. You've been to hell and back with me. and." and she started smiling for the first time, and she was encouraged to hear that because everybody wants to feel loved and appreciated. Everyone wants to feel needed, and most of us don't feel that way in our jobs, sometimes in our families, we don't feel loved and appreciated. So in your, you know, husbands, try to think of something Tomorrow morning or this evening, think of something nice to say to your spouse. Say a word of encouragement. I'm sure that uh, the wives can think of a lot of things they wish their husbands would say. In fact, you know what would be really interesting is to start a diary, have the wives start a diary, and write down all the things they wish their husband would say. And then put a lock on the diary so it can't be opened. And when you put the lock on it, I'm sure your husband will find it and be able to read it. <laughs> so, but I think it would be really good. Men especially need a lot of encouragement to, to do things like that, to say a kind word. It's not something that comes natural. We're trained to be rough and tough. And, and the gentler side, we're not really trained in very well. Maybe, maybe wives should keep a diary of things they wish their husbands would say. And I think that would smooth things over a lot. And the same for husbands. Um, You remember, how many of you remember Quint Nicola? Okay, there's a few of you who do. Dr. Quint Nicola, his father helped to build this church or turn it from a, I guess it was a bar and dance hall. And uh, they bought this property. And Dr. Nicola's father helped start this church. And Dr. Nicola came here for many many years because his father started the church even though Dr. Nicola lived in Loma Linda he would still drive up here because this was his father's church and I started coming here because Dr. Nicola who was my boss at the time would come up here so I I would get a free ride and I started coming to church here so I was encouraged to go to church here and I probably wouldn't come here if it wasn't for that encouragement now In all the things that you do, look back and say, would I have done this, all the good things, if I hadn't been encouraged? I would have never gone to dental school if I hadn't been encouraged um, to do so by a number of dentists and my Sabbath school teachers. I never would have gotten married if I hadn't been encouraged to do so. Um, I don't know. I, I, I... I... I mean when I got married i was I was forty two years old and i was my mother was beginning to get a little worried about me <laughs> you know maybe I'd never get married and she would say, "Um you know you're old enough to get married now <laughs> She would give me a little hints and uh but one of my coworkers, his wife, uh took pity on me and he, she started praying, and uh she found a girl who was about four or five thousand miles away that she thought would be a good spouse and flew that girl all the way to California from the Caribbean in Trinidad and made sure that that we spent a lot of time together. I mean everywhere I would go, the Stanix, the this my coworker and his wife, they would ask if they could come along and they'd bring this girl along with them. And so so it turned out it was actually an arranged marriage. And uh, they, they said that they'd been trying to set this thing up for months and months, and, and, and it was an arranged marriage. And I actually blundered into proposing to her. I didn't do it on purpose, I, she just, we were talking one day and she, she, I asked her if she was going, thought about having a family or things like that, because she never talked about it. So I, I said, you know, most women talk about that. So I said, you know, you never talk about these things. And she goes, oh, I don't think I'll ever get married. And I said, really, why not? And she goes, I don't think anyone would want to marry me. And I said, I'm sure a lot of people would want to marry you. And then she said, who would want to marry me? And just to be polite. You know, because I kind of, I said, well, I'd like to marry you. And then as soon as I said that, I thought, what did I just say? <laughs> but I thought about it for a minute or two, and I thought, well, you know, she's really a nice girl, and she's, you know, maybe this would work. <laughs> so I didn't say anything. I didn't retract my statement. I didn't apologize. And we ended up getting married, and it's worked out really well, and, um, I I know it was an arranged marriage, arranged by the Lord, because I think my wife is the only one that could put put up with me all these years. So now I've told you this story before, and my conclusion of the matter is that there's only two kinds of marriages. Do any of you remember what those two kinds are? Okay, there's two kinds of marriages, arranged and deranged. So you know, if there's any young people who are in the sound of my voice today, don't be so absolutely certain that your parents or your friends aren't a better judge than you are of who a good spouse would be because they have a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge and they they are probably can pick a better spouse than you could yourself. And I think, Mrs. White says, our friends know us better than we do. And when they make a recommendation for, she was talking about careers, but when they make a recommendation for a career that, that they think we'd be good at, we should pay careful attention. And a wife is a, certainly is a kind of a career, isn't it? I mean, you have to spend your life taking care of her and studying her and, and uh, so, anyway. Um, but I look back on my life, and, and I was wondering if I would ever get married, and the Lord provided, and that's actually in strengthened in my faith because now when I'm facing a really difficult problem, I like to think that I don't know what the solution to this problem is, but I'm hopeful that the Lord will solve it one way or another. And so I don't get worried so much anymore when difficulties come along because I'm hopeful that the Lord will try to solve solve these problems. Because without hope, if you don't have hope that the Lord is going to guide you and bless you, what's the alternative to that? Despair, depression, anxiety, and fear. And so whenever a problem arises, I'd encourage you to try to be hopeful, even though you don't have a solution, Try to be hopeful that the Lord will find a way to solve this problem or at least bring an acceptable conclusion to the matter. And if you have that kind of hope, then you'll be looking for the solution. You'll be, you'll be ready to accept it. Now, being willing to accept a solution is actually an, a, a gift, an art form. Most of us when the solution comes along, when the answer comes along, we're not interested. And, I mean, look in the Old Testament. There's a story in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 22, where one day Christ was teaching in the temple, and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him and said, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority to teach these things? They were doubtful of Christ's teaching, although it was very popular with the people. And he said to them, tell me one thing. John the Baptist, was his teaching from heaven or from men? And they said, well, if we say from heaven, they'll say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men, the people will stone us because the people think that John's a a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Christ answered, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So I've always wondered why why when I read the Old Testament doesn't it make it perfectly clear that a Messiah would come who would be Crucified and rejected by men, but he would save us from our sins. That, well, why isn't that in the Old Testament? Why don't I see that? It well, it is in the Old Testament. The reason I don't, I don't, or didn't see it is because I wasn't ready for it. I mean, what does it say? He um, in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected by men. Um, Isaiah 53 the whole chapter describes how he was rejected and, and his garments were divided it was a very good prophecy of Christ's last days but the Jews didn't see that as a prophecy of Christ and I asked myself why, why didn't God why didn't you make this plainer to me and to others that, that we need Christ we need him as the Savior and I think the answer is, is that, well, what, it, what happened? What did Christ tell these things? There's another parable in the Bible where Christ says to them, I think it's in the story of Lazarus, where Lazarus dies and goes to heaven and he's, he's eating with Abraham and, and sitting at a table in heaven and somebody says send, send Lazarus back to tell my brother to have more faith and Christ what does Christ say he said they have Moses and the prophets if they don't believe them neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead and talks to them now that's a frightening thing What Christ is saying is that you are unwilling to accept the truth. And even if I present it in extraordinary forms, you still won't accept it. So, And then I thought more about how Christ was revealed. Christ was revealed. He was born a baby in a manger. He lived a good life. He helped a lot of people. And then we rejected him and crucified him. And having that story told in the New Testament, I begin to understand what the Savior, who He was. And is there any other way that Christ could have revealed these things or that God could have revealed these things to us? I'm not sure that there was. If if I'd been living 2,500 or 3,000 years ago and you would have explained all these things to me, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have said, oh, that's just a fairy tale. So sometimes the truth is very, very hard to accept. So I've come to the conclusion that my own beliefs get in the way of me accepting the truth. I am, in many ways, a prisoner of my own opinions. And I need to try to escape from that. I mean, I wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm probably wrong. Will you help me to escape from my misconceptions? Help me to escape from myself. And I think he'll answer that prayer. And he'll show you to have more faith in him. To have to... What does Hebrews say? It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, how does He reward us? Well, one of the ways, and I'll give you an example from this morning, I get a little bit nervous sometimes when I have to preach. I mean, they say that public speaking is one of the most fearful things that people have to do. And so I prayed for about an hour and a half this morning when I got up at six and prayed till about 7.30. And afterwards, I felt a sense of peace. But not only that, I had a completely different sermon prepared. And after I prayed, it was like the Lord's soul told me, that sermon you prepared, that's not what the people need to hear. I have something else I want you to tell them. So we have to be willing to listen. And and if you have faith in God, you have to have more faith in Him than you do in yourself. That means you have to be willing to change your plans. Now, that's a hard thing for most people to do, to change. So we need to have faith that He will help us and guide us and show us how to solve our problems. The other thing is, the next secret is diligence. And it took me a long time to figure this out, that you need to be diligent, you need to be prepared in, uh, in everything you do. Who wrote oh, Uncle Arthur's Bedtime Stories? Have any of you ever read any of those stories? Well, there's a story about a farmer who doesn't have any children, and he goes into the village to hire some young boys to help him in on the farm and he asked starts asking one of these young boys a question before he hires him and the boy the only answer the boy gives is i sleep very well at night and the old man the old man doesn't know what that means but he hires the young man anyway he looks like he's fairly bright and they're working in the fields and they're harvesting the hay and they're building haystacks. And you in the, I don't know if you've ever seen haystacks, but sometimes they just pile up the hay. Nowadays they bale it. They have a machine that compresses it and put wire bands around it. But the old days they used to, when I was a little boy, some of the farmers would just make a big pile of hay and then they would load it into a big trailer take it to the barn and load it just like that into the barn. And the, and the barn was filled with, with uh, hay that might have been, you know, six or seven feet deep. And the cats used to make their nests in there, and the mice would make their nests in there. And all sorts of wild animals lived in there, as I remember. But they would build these haystacks. But if a windstorm came along, what happened to the haystack? It was gone. I mean, the wind would just take it away. But anyway, in the Uncle Arthur story, they're harvesting the hay, and the owner, the farmer, the, men are, the these young boys and men are working in the field, but he goes in a little bit early and leaves them out there, doesn't see what they're doing when they're finishing up. They The workers come back. They have their supper. They go to bed. And that night, a big windstorm comes up. And... The farmer's worried that the haystacks are going to blow away, so he goes to wake this boy up who's living in his house, and the little boy won't, won't wake up. I mean, because why? He said, I sleep very well at night. And then next morning he went out and found that all the haystacks were there because the boy had taken a, a he found some tarps, small tarps, and put them over the top of it and tie down the he stacks with ropes, put ropes around them. And that's why he slept so well at night. He wasn't worried about them. And I, and I think we need we need to be that way. We need to be diligent in everything that we do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. It says in I believe in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9:10. Now, that message is especially important for young people. Are there any young people in the audience here today? <laughs> I'll have to raise my hand. I feel like, uh, I mean, I wake up in the morning and I feel like a 12-year-old kid. I, it's like, wow, what's going to happen today? You know, what, what exciting thing is going to happen? And so I, f- I still feel like a kid sometimes but if if you prepare when you're young especially in school and master a subject it might be biology or chemistry or or something maybe french spanish but if you master some subject then you have a better chance of getting a scholarship and doing well in school and if you do well in college then you can maybe go on to professional school and become a doctor or or if you do well in high school, you have a better chance of becoming a nurse. It's actually very hard to get into professional school today. Loma Linda has, let me ask Raquel, do you know how many uh, dental students apply to the dental school every year? Okay, there's about 1,700. And how many get accepted? Uh, A little under 100. It's usually been about 90, 88, 90. Out of 1,700, they accept 90. They just increased it recently to 100. So you have 1 in 17 chance of getting in. It's very, very difficult to get in. But the ones that get in tend to have recently tend to have really high grades, they pick the ones with the high grades because in the last five years this, they've made the national boards more difficult. They have to, we have to take an exam called national board exam. It's very difficult, a lot of science in it, and the dean has decided the only students who are doing well are the ones with science backgrounds. So he's, he says, I want science majors and I want them to have high GPAs when they get in. So if you don't have a good GPA, you don't get in. And it's really difficult. And I have friends and family members who are applying to school. And because I work there, they think that I can pull some strings and get them in. And I can write them a letter of recommendation. And I can even go and talk to the admissions committee, which I frequently do. But they all don't get in. And then they call me on the phone. They're crying and they're unhappy. and and uh, I had one the other last week call me. She didn't get in. And I said, with your background, I don't think you're qualified to get in. You need to go back and get a, a, she, she, had a she was the dental hygienist. Now, that's good preparation, but it's not enough science. So they, I said, you need to go back and get a degree in biology and maybe even a master's degree in physiology or something like that, if you're really serious. Now, that's a, a, a great hurdle to go through. But she's still really young, and she said, okay, I'll go back and get a degree in biology and I'll reapply. And so she was determined. So you have to be really diligent, really determined. And the decisions you make when you're young will affect you the rest of your life. If you're diligent when you're young, the doors open for you. If you're not, they're forever closed. When we were in St. Vincent in the Grenadines, I have a brother-in-law who's in his 20s and he's kind of, he thinks he's really cool and he drinks and smokes and does all those other things and, and a lot more other things. And uh, so he has a lot of friends that are like-minded and these guys would come over to the house and talk and um, they kept complaining. They would tell us stories about, they would grow marijuana in the mountains and then the police would come and chase them and they would jump down the mountains or jump over a wall and they'd break their legs when they jumped over and all sorts of terrible things happened and then they say nobody ever gives me a chance and i have to kind of i kind of back up a little bit when they say that but i think what about when you were in school what about you know your first job that you lost in saint vincent if you get a job it's a little tropical island and fruit grows on all the trees you know, you can't starve to death you can just go and pick coconuts or mangoes or breadfruit. Breadfruit is like this giant potato about this big. And if you bake this potato, you have enough to feed eight people, add a little fish to it, you have a great meal. But So the people don't work really hard. They would get a job maybe doing construction as a construction worker. And when they got their first paycheck, they would take their paycheck, go out, go drinking, uh, buy some clothes, do something, and then they wouldn't go back to work for two or three weeks or maybe two or three months until the money ran out. And then they go back to work and they want, and they've been replaced because the boss hired someone else, and they go, where's my job? Why? What happened? And they don't understand that when you have a job you're supposed to go every week, every day. They don't understand that and say, they think, well, I have enough money. I don't need to work for a while. So they would stop going to work. And then they wonder why nobody gives them a chance because they would get two or three jobs and lose every job. They'd throw it away. They wouldn't go back to work. So diligence is really, really important. Now, I am not by nature diligent. I tend to to be very sleepy and I'm glad that none of you have seen me fall asleep in church. None of you, huh? Good, good, I'm glad. So, but uh, I fall asleep, so I have to push myself. I have to really try to wake myself up and and to go forward. But I think being diligent is really critical to being successful. So that's, I think that's another secret. And the, the final one, and I'll try to close on this thought, is to be compassionate. That, what I see is missing most often in the Christian experience. I work All the people I work with, the vast majority, they claim to be Christians. But if a student makes a mistake, their first thought is, kick them out of school. And I'm like, I mean, your daughter works with teachers like that. Uh, Mary Angeli's daughter, Daniel's daughter, is going to a school in Texas where, She's going to nursing school and what, two-thirds of the students don't make it through the program? Yeah, more than that, like. Ninety-six percent of the students don't make it. Now, can you imagine going to school where 96 are going to, fl- you start out with, with 200 students and only four grad, how many? Ten graduate. I mean that's brutal, that's like inhumane. You know what that says? That doesn't say that those 96% of the students were no good. It says the teachers are no good. If, if one of my students fails, whose fault is it? It's my fault, okay? And so I tried really hard to make sure that they don't fail. And. The students were taking a clinical exam. It's called a summative exam. It's the summation of all their knowledge. They have to put it together. And they were taking this exam on clinic. Uh, they were actually working on mannequins. They weren't working on real patients. And they're doing this surgical procedure on a mannequin. And one of the students, it's, this test lasted for about three hours. It's a surgical test with the surgical handpiece and 15 minutes before the test was over, one of the students was still only 10% done and she, she panicked. I mean, she goes, she started sweating and oh, I'll never finish, I'll never finish. And and she, she was right, she wouldn't finish. And, and she, was, she was shaking and her, she was starting to drop things and she was really nervous. She said, I won't finish, I won't finish. And I said to her, yes, you will. She goes, well, I can't even get this matrix band on. And so I said, let me show you how to do this. Now she was sitting in a corner of a big room, but the clinic is huge and it has little walls so you can't see the next person. So I could sit down and help her and nobody would see me. Uh, the other students and the other instructors because she was way off in the corner. So I just sat down and started helping her And I finished the procedure about 14 minutes later, she had one minute left to finish it up. And by this time, the class president, who's a really sharp guy, had finished and he was walking around the clinic and he saw that this girl was in trouble and he stopped to see if there's anything he could do to help. Now that's why he's the class president, because he's always walking around and if somebody looks like they're having a hard time, he'll stop and try to help them and be a blessing to them. And so we had one minute left, and the rule was you had to clean up your cubicle, take all the instruments back to sterilization, take all the supplies back to dental supply before you could turn your case in. So this girl says, there's no way I can clean up in one minute. And the class president says, yes, there is. You stay and clean up. I'll take your case downstairs and turn it in to the department chairman. So he did that and she got it in on time. And, and I mean she was shaking uh, when she thought she wasn't gonna finish. And afterwards she was really grateful. She was grateful to the class president and me. Now I think there's a real advantage in treating students like that because what's gonna happen to that, that young woman when she graduates and she's working with someone who's behind and in trouble, she's gonna help. She's seen she's learned the example. And the student that I had last week that was he was I mean you could see fear in his eyes. Every time I saw him, he looked afraid. And I spent about two hours with him. And he said, you know, he was really grateful, and I was a great teacher, and he he was very thankful. And I thought about, now, why did I do that? Why did I spend two hours? I left at 7.15 that night. Why did I spend two extra hours with this guy? And I look back over my life. And when I was in dental school, I used to, I don't work very fast. I'm kind of plodding and methodical. And I have to think my way through every problem. And I think, I, people say I think too much. Anyway, I would be in the lab every night from 5 o'clock till 10 o'clock, every uh, Sunday through Thursday night. The Nell schools closed on Friday, Friday evening. And Sunday, I would usually get there at like 9 or 10 in the morning and stay till late at night, 10 at night. I'd be in there all day long trying to catch my, my lab work. And, when, and I had a hard time in school, in the labs. But I remember one of my teachers, Dr. Ed Johnston, he would come in on Sundays, and he would sit down with me for two hours and show me how to do the lab work. And he did that many, many times. And he did that with a lot of other students too. And so he's remembered with fondness and love by all the students. And I thought, you know, why, why did I help this student last week? And I look back and it was because somebody helped me. And I learned to do that from him. Learned to look for the, the ugly duckling you know, in the class and try to be some kind of help to them. So I'm really grateful for the help. There's been many, many people that have been a blessing to me. I couldn't be where I was today if it wouldn't, hadn't been for many miracles and many friends. I don't... I'm not who I am because I'm skilled or talented or blessed or, or wise or handsome, any of those things. I'm here only because I'm blessed. And I think that's true for all of us. I'm not qualified for any position that I hold. And I've learned that people who think they are qualified, their self confidence disqualifies them because it's God's blessings that make us qualified. Was David qualified to be king of Israel? What experience did he have? He was a shepherd. You know, does that qualify? No, it was, he wasn't qualified by preparation, although he was a good soldier by that time. But I think he was qualified because of his humility and his willingness to let God bless him. So... I don't think any of us should think that we're qualified for certain positions. But on the other hand, none of us should think we're not qualified. Because if we're humble enough to accept God's instructions, He will will qualify us. He will make us able and ready. And that gives me a lot of hope because there's a lot of things I don't know how to do. And I'm sure that you do too. But I am hopeful that God if you're willing to let Him bless you, that He will qualify you. But I'd like to thank you very much for your attention, and I'd like to remind you, look at each day for a way to be a blessing to someone else. Be hopeful that the Lord will give you the wisdom to know how to do that. Be diligent in your efforts and show compassion on those 96% of the students who need help. And God will bless you in everything you do. Thank you one and all. Let's bow our heads. Daniel, could you have the closing benediction, please?